Welcome to the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. I'm Paul Kidwell, co-producer of the podcast, and I'm delighted that you can join us for the inaugural episode. Each month, Bob will lead two of the industry's most celebrated and dynamic leaders in a vibrant discussion on one of the many topics that defines and drives the life science industry. Over the past decade, our industry has flourished as a record number of established and emerging companies have dedicated themselves to creating innovative medicines that move beyond conventional treatment standards of care and make an impact on patients' lives. During the current pandemic environment, biomedical research has taken center stage as scores of industry researchers have responded to the acute medical need caused by the coronavirus and now are in the throes of developing a vaccine to treat COVID-19. Today's episode is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific, AIS, and Marsh and McLennan Agency. COVID-19 has spread across the globe with devastating effect. Thermo Fisher Scientific's scale and depth of capabilities have never been more vital. And our mission to enable our customers to make the world healthier, cleaner, and safer has never been more important. At Thermo Fisher Scientific, we remain at the forefront of the fight against coronavirus and are partnering with biopharma customers who are working to develop COVID-19 treatments and vaccines. And that's just the start. Learn more at fisherside.com. That's fishersci.com. And now please join Bob in his discussion on the current state of our industry with his guests. Hello, everyone. This is Bob Coughlin, and welcome to the State of Possible podcast. Each month, I invite you to join me as I speak with some of the brightest minds in the biopharma industry as we dissect and interpret what is driving our industry from bench to bedside. I'm joined on this podcast with two industry professionals who can help shape the current state of the industry and provide shade and context for this year and beyond. Speaking with me today are Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath, President and CEO of the Biotechnology Innovation Organization, better known as BIO, and Dr. John Mariganori, Chief Executive Officer of El Nylum Pharmaceuticals. Welcome, Michelle and John. Thanks for having hey, us. Thanks for having me. Folks, you know, I am so excited that the two of you are joining us on our first podcast here, our first State of Possible podcast for MassBio. Couldn't think of two better guests. So first and foremost, thank you so much for that. You know, and let's kick it right off. Obviously, COVID-19 is front and center. You know, when we tout ourselves as an industry that is driven by innovation, let's talk about, you know, how our sector can continue to foster growth and innovation during the current pandemic environment. We know a lot's going on here in Massachusetts. Over 85 companies are working on either diagnostics, therapeutics, or vaccines uh, related to COVID-19, but you guys have more of a global and uh, national and international perspective. So, you know, why, why don't we start with you, Michelle? What are your thoughts? Well, I have just been astounded by the level of collaboration, cooperation, and dedication to public health that we've seen across the biotechnology sector. You know, we at the Biotechnology Innovation Organization have started a COVID tracker to keep track of all of the projects globally underway to try to develop new products against COVID. And just in a mere seven months, we've seen 700 development projects kick off 
181 of which are focused at developing a COVID vaccine. So this is just an incredible rate of progress and speed, and it's just really inspiring to see our companies really rise to the challenge. Yeah, it's been amazing, Michelle, and the COVID tracker has been uh, such a wonderful resource and tool for everybody in our industry to use. And John, you, you know, you're a Massachusetts person, right? You're one of our local mm-hmm. rock star legends in the biopharma industry, but you also have this national perspective uh, and your company's done amazing things. What, what are your perspectives in the current pandemic environment? Well, I, I couldn't agree more with what Michelle just said, but I think in addition to what the industry is doing on COVID, I, I find it amazing how the industry continues to work on other medicines, even during this tough pandemic time. Most of the companies uh, that I'm aware of still have their labs and manufacturing facilities that have stayed open during the pandemic. They've obviously done that in a way that's ensured safety for uh, their employees. And we've also learned as an industry how to be incredibly effective on a virtual basis. For example, at Elmylum, just since March alone, we filed an IND, we filed INDs, NDAs, We've discovered new development candidates, started new programs. We've continued enrollment in clinical trials. So we've not been standing back in this this difficult time. We've just been advancing the innovation that we all have in front of us. And I think it's just great to see what the industry has been able to do despite these challenges. Yeah, those are great points. And I think one of the silver linings out of all of this is going to be the fact that due to COVID-19, we've been forced to do things in a more collaborative way and in a faster way. And, and, and hopefully some of those best practices, I think they will, John, we're already seeing it. Michelle, we're seeing that this will translate to solving unmet medical need in different indications. And that, you know, brings me to the point where I'd like to talk a little bit about perception of our industry. I mean, you guys both know I I got involved with this industry because I have a son with cystic fibrosis, and I've always thought that this industry, what it does for patients, our perception should be, you know, uh, that we're we're doing work to save lives. Think of how, you know, weird it seems that people would have a bad perception of of this industry. But, you know, with COVID-19 and the pandemic, it's really shined a spotlight on the true value of our industry, and now everybody knows what it feels like to live with an unmet medical need. And who would have ever thought that a vaccine would be the most important thing to our world's economy, never mind folks getting back to their normal way of life. Do you think that this is an opportunity in a sense? And again, this is a horrible pandemic. I don't want to sound like we're capitalizing on on a horrible situation. But do you think that this is an opportunity to show folks that what our industry and the amazing people that go to work every day are all about and change the perception of our industry moving forward? Michelle, what are your thoughts there? I mean, it's bio, a big part of bio's job is to, you know, really, really educate the public and key opinion leaders and folks in government as to what we do. Is this an opportunity? Oh, it certainly is. And Bob, you guys have taken advantage of that as well, because, you know, this is just a moment for people to empathize with patients that are waiting around the globe on new solutions and new breakthroughs. The patients do not stop waiting just because of a pandemic, but now the pandemic has given everyone a glimpse of what it's like, as you say, to wait to fill an unmet medical need. So it's really important that we um, crystallize that attention, that we let people know that what we do in the life sciences is more important than ever, and it can help so many lives and so many families, and it's critical to um, seeing our economic recovery So I just think we're in the best um, industry in the world and our companies are so dedicated to improving the quality of life 
And I just think that's phenomenal. That's fabulous. John, what are your thoughts? There is no doubt that science and, in, and innovation are the factors that will ultimately get us out of this pandemic. And I, and I, there's no doubt about that. And, and the public is beginning to recognize that, which is terrific. Now, we have to be careful. If we lose public trust through lack of needed scientific rigor, or if results that emerge become hyped, creating false expectations, or for that matter, if, if companies aren't responsible, we could go backwards. So we have to be careful. And most importantly, Bob, we have to keep politics out of the process. This has got to be driven by science and innovation, not politics. Yeah, that's a good point, John. But, you know, I guess part of my frustration, and I don't know if I can articulate it well here, but, you know, when times are bad, everybody loves our industry, right? When people are sick, they love our industry. Now we're in the middle of a pandemic and policy leaders love our industry. But look, will this last? And we've already seen uh, the administration has proposed some ill-advised legislation during the pandemic that could have a chilling effect on investment and our ability to bring new drugs to market. So, like, what is it that you think we can do to make this last, this goodwill that we have? Well, I think, Michelle, you should comment, but I, I think one thing we can do is just, is just demonstrate the power of the science and, the, and innovation that our industry brings and, and, and how it ultimately solves this major public health crisis. I think the results will be in, you know, the trust that we can gain from the public around what our industry does in this incredible time is something which is in front of this industry to the harness. And, and we are positioned to do that in a very powerful way. Yeah, John, I think you're absolutely right. And more now than ever, our work can't stop at the bench. You know, you touched upon it, John, when you said, you know, we also have to become the advocates for access to the science that comes out of our research and out of our work. And I think if patients see us really adhering to the data, adhering to understanding the science and focusing on the meaning of the science, and then at the end of the day also advocating for patient access, I think that will go a long way to people understanding what it is we're trying to do. Yeah, like all great, great points. You know, we talked a little bit about the accelerated drug development process that we're witnessing as it relates to COVID vaccines. And and hey, you know, once we get through COVID, we want to get back to, well, we want to continue with the great work that we're doing to solve unmet medical need uh, for all patients. How do we ensure that we translate this to non-COVID therapeutics? In other words, uh, what infrastructure and regulatory hurdles will need to be addressed or changed? Uh, you know, one of the things we enjoy so much at MassBio is working with the policy team at Bio to make sure that our federal action plan is, is implemented. You know, what are some of those changes that you see we could make in the future, Michelle? Well, I think that's critically important. You know, I spent um, four years working at the Food and Drug Administration, and it was such a storied agency that has such an important role to play and is really the gold standard in terms of determining whether new medicines are safe and effective. But it's also a little bit set in its ways. And what we've seen during COVID is an amazing amount of evolution and flexibility on behalf of the agency. You know, realizing that time is of the essence, patients are waiting, and, you know, just adhering to the way you did things five years ago is not the best way to evaluate new and emerging technologies. And so we at BIO want to make sure that we continue to see that amount of creativity and that adaptive stance to progress and to scientific innovation that we've seen during COVID. So, for example, 
we've seen an incredible amount of new ways of thinking about clinical trials. Uh, the agency working hand-in-hand with drug developers to make sure that clinical trials are happening as quickly as possible, but they're getting the data that they need, but they're not adhering to you know, cookie-cutter approaches to collecting that data. We want to continue to see that, that type of flexibility and that type of collaboration and cooperation. So all of these sorts of things that we're learning with COVID are important um, to keep our eye on. You know, the past record for developing a new vaccine was four years with the mumps vaccine. And now in the course of seven months, we've seen two vaccines enter phase three clinical trials, and our hope is to have a vaccine by the end of this year, early 2021. That rapid increase in speed is in part due to the incredible um, level of science that we have and the amazing scientists we have working, but it's also due to um, government regulators um, and agencies working very closely with our companies to make sure that new progress gets to patients. Great points. Great points. John, do you have anything to add on that? Yeah, I, I think, look, there's a real opportunity to learn from the COVID sense of urgency for other medicines being developed for severe life-threatening diseases and future infectious diseases that are going to emerge, future pandemics. I think there really is going to be a important learning from all this. I agree with Michelle. I think the FDA and the EMA have been really remarkable in showing accommodations to accelerated development timelines and review processes. I think things like Operation Warp Speed are are excellent. And why don't we have them for other diseases? Why don't we have an Operation Warp Speed for cancer yeah. or for rare diseases um, in other settings? I think the biggest challenge is infrastructure related to manufacturing. And this is going to be especially the case for vaccines where billions of doses will be required. So we also need to think if we're going to be in this new world of of more rapid development of medicines, how do we think about manufacturing differently? How do we think about capacity? How do we think about the the steps that are needed uh, from a risk-taking standpoint to advance manufacturing early in development? That's going to be the real bottleneck. Um, and something that we really have to think hard about for the future. Absolutely. I mean, you think about what we've gone through, like here at MassBio, when we developed the Massachusetts Life Sciences uh, Supply Hub for PPE for our frontline healthcare workers. I've been in meetings over the last several weeks where we say, geez, if you thought it was difficult for us to get N95 masks, think about what's going to happen when a vaccine is approved, right? It needs to get manufactured and then distributed so that we can achieve population immunity. That's going to be a whole different sense. But but back to what you both were just talking about, I, I can't help but feel and, and, and hear from what you're saying, but also from what I've seen since last March has been this phenomena, uh, which is around openness and collaboration. I, I will have been at MassBio now for uh, I think 14 years on September 1st, and in the last decade plus, I have never seen the amount of collaboration that is happening amongst these, not, it, we, we've, we've seen it with the small bio, biotech companies, but now the big pharma companies, John and Michelle, like if you look at the larger companies in the bio membership, and John, your colleagues of, of large company status like yours, to see how much they're sharing information they're working together, they're rooting for each other, and they're even talking about how they're going to manufacture other people's products. I mean, do you agree that this has been the highest level of collaboration that you've seen in the history of our industry? We've never seen anything like this. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. For example, there's, you know, we're part of this COVID R&D effort, so our, our team is engaged weekly with calls and 
and collaborative efforts. We're sharing information with each other about what other companies are doing in ways that would never be done never, before. Never, never, ever. And I think there's opportunities for this type of collaboration in the future, especially as it relates to other future public health crises that, that will almost certainly emerge. Yeah, and going back to like when you talked about how why don't we have task force for like, like this for cancer? Why don't we have it for cystic fibrosis? Why don't we have it to, for Duchenne muscular dystrophy? We can attack every disease this way. And I think that's why I get so excited because, yeah, this has been a horrible time. But sometimes it takes horrible times and horrible situations to get us to change the way we do things so we can do mm. it better, quicker, faster, more efficient. Michelle, I think you've come on board at Bio at a perfect time. You know, people would think that, you know, why would you want to change careers in the middle or, or, or a different role in, in this industry during a time like this? You're the best person for this job. I mean, tell me, are you as excited as I am right now to take on this challenge? Uh, Bob, well, every time I, t I speak with you, I get even more excited because I've got to say, <laughs> you know, you have been you, you have been such a great evangelist for the power of our industry and I think it's important for those of us who really see, you know, what a difference it makes to patients at the end of the day to not be shy and to be proud of the work that we've done thus far and the work that's still ahead. So, yes, I completely agree with you and John. This is going to unlock a new way for us to work together, a new way to keep our eyes on the prize of what we're working for and why it's so important and why it's more important than our individual companies necessarily competing against each other. And that has been wonderful to see, and I really think it will continue. You're listening to the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin. We're going to pause for a brief moment to introduce you to one of our sponsors. We'll be back shortly. AIS, a leading manufacturer of commercial office furniture and a preferred partner for MassBio's Savings and Rewards program, is doing their part to combat the COVID-19 pandemic through their Sew the Mask program. By partnering with the United Way of North Central Massachusetts, AIS is helping to ensure that everyone has access to high-quality masks. MassBio is asking all members to donate to this initiative. For every 1,000 masks you sponsor, 100 will be donated to United Way. For more information, visit SewTheMasks.com or reach out to your MassBio member representative. You're listening to the State of Possible podcast. And now, back to Bob Coughlin. These truly are exciting times, challenging times, but you know something, that's what do they say, when times are darkest, that's when stars shine the brightest, right? And the folks that work in our industry, they're all stars. Let's transfer right now to health inequity, because again, there is an opportunity right now for us to change the way we look at clinical trials, the way we look at uh, healthcare disparities, the way we look, you know, I, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that I always used to say, you know, as a CF dad, I'd say that disease doesn't discriminate, right? It can hit, adversity doesn't discriminate. It can hit anyone. I don't say that anymore because one of the things that this pandemic has done to me is really opened my eyes how, you know, there is a great deal of health inequity. And when you look at what COVID-19 has done to underserved communities, it's, it's ravaging, right? So for us as an industry, how can we really make a major impact, you know, by diversifying clinical trials? And, and we talked a little bit about early, ensuring access to medicines, medicines through innovative payment models and payment assistance programs so everybody can access these therapies. 
Let, let's talk about more about EDI, uh, equality, diversity, and inclusion, as it relates to our workforce, right? Don't you think our workforce should look like the population of patients that we serve? It hasn't. We can do better. And, and again, how do we focus on diseases that historically impact disadvantaged or, or minority populations? Again, because of all of this that's happened, I think it's really shined a spotlight on, on healthcare disparities. And as leaders of this industry, it's our responsibility to fix that. So, Michelle, uh, I know Bio has a great deal of activity in this space. Would you care to share some of it with our listeners? Well, you know, you're absolutely right. This has really crystallized the devastating impact of health disparities in a way we've never seen before. You know, African-Americans are three times more likely to die of COVID than their white counterparts. I just saw a study yesterday that saying Hispanic kids are eight times more likely than white children to be hospitalized from COVID and African-American children are five times more likely. I mean, what we're seeing is the impact of generations of a divide in terms of who has access to healthcare and who doesn't, and who has access to healthy communities, nourishing foods, clean air, clean water, all of those things that impact your underlying health status, as well as your ability to fight off disease. So it has been amazingly clarifying, and it's important for us to do everything we can. And MassBio really um, threw down the gauntlet with their CEO pledge, which we just think is amazing, which has asked companies in our industry to pledge to some key tenets of improving diversity and equality when it comes to the life sciences. Um, just this last week, Bio launched their bioequality initiative, which is really aimed at three pillars. The first one is fighting health disparities, um, and that um, rests on one, advocating for equal access to COVID therapies and vaccines, as well as doing everything we can to increase the diversity we see in clinical trials. The second tenet is to improve the um, employment and advancement of minority scientists and entrepreneurs in the life science sector. And we're going to do that in part by really capitalizing on the great work many of our companies have done to train African-American scientists and entrepreneurs in their company-based training programs. So companies like Biogen, which over the last 10 years has trained 250 African-American scientists in the Boston region, those are amazing programs that have been underway for quite some time. We at Bio want to create a LinkedIn-type um, platform that will allow all of our 1,000 companies to see the alumni of these programs and, and reach out to them as job opportunities become available. And then the third pillar of our bioequality agenda is around economic development. And, you know, our companies are not just amazing producers, they're also customers themselves. They have supply chains that require many, many different types of vendors. And we want to do everything we can to support them patronizing minority and women-owned businesses within their supply chain. And then also making sure that the NIH grants, the small business innovation grants, the CBER grants that are used to help um, young scientists start their own biotechnology companies are equitably distributed to a diverse set of entrepreneurs. So those are the areas that bio is going to start out focusing on, but it's more important now than ever. And it's not just a nice to have. It's not nice that your clinical trial reflects the population that's going to treat. It's not nice that your company reflects the patients that it serves. It's essential because 
That's how you get the research done that's meaningful to the patient populations you're trying to serve. And that's how you know that your medical solutions are really going to work for all patients at the end of the day. Yeah, it's true. The, the, the clinical trial, the pool of candidates in the clinical trial should look like the patient population we're going to serve. And we just haven't done a great job doing that. So, Michelle, you said it's just a start. Well, I'll tell you, that's an amazing start. I mean, li- the list of things that you folks are working on. And again, we've always said, if you want to change how things are, you have to change how you do things. And thank you for being a change agent, because that is truly going to, we're going to see the results of what bio is doing in this area. We're going to see it quickly. You know, it won't happen overnight, but we're going to see meaningful change. And, and again, even looking at the workforce piece, right? It's scientific fact that the more diverse any group is, the better the outcome will be. And I can't think of anything more difficult and challenging than solving unmet medical need. So why wouldn't we pull from the most diverse group humanly possible to face these challenges? And, and that's what we're working on. So it's, it's so exciting. John, you, you're very familiar, not only nationally, but what we've been doing here in Massachusetts. Do you want to add, uh, you know, some of Elnilam has truly been a leader in this space as well. Please share with the audience. I, I couldn't be more happy with what you know mass bio has done on this front and what and what uh, and what we're doing now uh, at bio with Michelle's leadership I mean I signed the mass bio pledge obviously couldn't support the bio quality effort more but companies also have to walk the talk so let me say a few things about what we're doing at Onilam one is we're developing our, our lead product is in the United States is a product that addresses a disease of African-American communities Hereditary ATTR amyloidosis is a predominantly. Can we have everyone in the disease. audience say that real fast, John? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but that is predominantly an, an African American disease. So, so we are focused on a disease that affects this important population. And yet, we need to do more as a company, and we are going to do more as a company to improve racial representation in our clinical studies. That's just a, a requirement going forward, and we have an initiative internally to do that. The other thing is we also need to increase the representation of black and brown leaders in our industry. And to that effect, just this past week, we're, we couldn't be more happy to appoint Devon Greenstreet as our president, taking over from Barry Green, who's our long, long-term president. But we need to do much, much more here, including increasing the pipeline of talent and the type of work that um, and Michelle mentioned from Biogen are things that we're looking at as a company to try to foster increasing the pipeline of black and brown Uh, students and leaders in our industry, because that's so important for us. While we're on the topic, I'd like to just drill down a little bit deeper and talk more about clinical trials and health inequity. How can our industry make positive changes in area with the clinical trials and telehealth and telemedicine? Like if, if you look at what's happened in the past and why we're, and I guess I go back to my experience as a patient advocacy as a, as a dad, right? When I looked at the clinical trials that Bobby would participate in when he was much younger, you know, it was very challenging for us because you had to pay for parking, you had to buy meals, you had to, one of the parents would have to take a, a day off from work to do it. Are there things that our industry can do, in your opinion, and especially John, where, where you've worked in this space? You know, how can you assist people with clinical trials so that we can be more inclusive? I mean, is it realistic to think that you can provide travel, housing, logistical support? Can you adopt the advantages of digital technologies so that we can find more diverse participants to track the results maybe remotely? I mean, these are ideas that 
we really, really need to work on if we're going to make our, uh, our clinical trials more diverse. There's no doubt um, that we've learned from the COVID world how to do clinical trials in a completely different way. And I think this is going to be important for um, increasing diversity in our, in, our, in our clinical trial study populations. So, for example, with clinical trials, we're doing a lot more home dosing, monitoring in the home, and also home assessments for um, important endpoints in the study. And telemedicine is going to be a major factor in, in, in clinical trials in the future, for the future, but also it's going to be a major factor for how we engage with HCPs on medical education and promotional engagement in a way that I also think will help improve the, the access of our medicines to diverse populations. So there's a lot that will come out of the digital telemedicine virtual world that has been pushed upon us with COVID that I think really is an opportunity to improve the representation of under, underserved populations in clinical studies, but also on the access side as well. I think there's a real opportunity here that we can, we can harness with these learnings. Yeah, Michelle, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting when, um, when I was at FDA, we called it, you know, not just patient-focused drug development, but also just patient-centered total product life cycle. It should be the total patient life cycle. You should be thinking about the patient at every stage of development when you're trying to define the unmet medical need that you're going after, when you're trying to come up with meaningful clinical endpoints that will make a difference for patients when you're designing a clinical trial that actually works with how patients live their lives, and then when you're achieving success, when you're saying that you found something that really works for patients, that should be determined by what patients are really looking for. So it's wonderful to see this evolution because I think everything we do has to really be built around whether or not it's useful for patients and fits within their lives. You're making my job real easy because right now I want to shift to the patient voice. Uh, you know, so when you think about it, and John, let's go back, you know, 14 years or so, we didn't really talk as an industry, we really didn't talk as much about the patient, right? We were very focused on research and development. And one of the amazing phenomena of the past decade is how deep and wide the patient voice has been immersed in our industry. I know I decided to leave government because don't tell the people who I used to represent, but I was spending more time as a patient advocacy in the cystic fibrosis space. And I don't consider myself a lobbyist or a hired gun for the industry. I consider myself a patient advocate and I'm very proud of that. And I think that when we tell the story of what we do around the patient, I really think that elected officials understand that because they care about their constituents. I haven't met a politician that truly doesn't care about what their constituents think. So for this, are there areas where direct patient involvement with drug manufacturers can become even more pronounced? And, and what do you think the industry benefits will be there? I mean, we've come so far and wide in engaging patients in the process, and we really need to make sure that the voice is incorporated from the earliest stages, even as early as clinical trial design, right? Let's ask the patients what they think. There are a lot of things that are more about quality of life as it is opposed to, you know, the medicine that they're going to get. So to see a lot of these companies, and even earlier on, and Michelle and John, I think you both agree, the larger pharma companies started several years back having patient engagement groups, patient advocacy folks. Now even the smaller companies that are pre commercial are getting engaged with their particular disease communities. Let's talk about this a little bit because I think it's important we utilize the time that we have left 
on this podcast to really drive home why it is that we all do what we do and we do it to help sick people. We do it to solve unmet medical needs. We do it to create tomorrows for people who would otherwise die. I I just, I honestly, as you can tell, I'm getting a little jacked up here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, but what we do is amazing. I don't have nightmares about going to my son's funeral anymore. And I used to have that because of an amazing drug that was invented for the CF community. And, you know, I didn't know that that would happen. So again, let's get back to the patient voice. Michelle, what are your thoughts? Well, you're absolutely right. We too often try to say us versus them when we talk about science. You know, there's the scientists and there's the patients. But in reality, all of us are either patients, family members of patients, or we will be. And a lot of us in the life sciences have gone into the fields we're in because we've had a close encounter with illness that really makes us appreciate how important it is to find solutions to these issues and to these daunting challenges that patients face. And so we can't lose sight of that. You know, I like to say that science is the social justice issue of our age. And I say that because where I grew up in Oakland, California, you know, with parents who were both in public health, I saw on a daily basis how vulnerable communities, poor communities really needed science. They needed better health care. They needed cleaner air. They needed more nutritious foods. They needed the freedom from all of those difficulties that could help them raise out of poverty and really have a brighter future for themselves and for their children. And so anything that keeps them from scientific progress, anything that diminishes the promise of science to improve their lives is only going to perpetuate inequality, is only going to perpetuate poverty and make it harder for those families to progress. And you don't have to be poor or vulnerable to know how important it is to have science at your disposal when a member of your family is, is ill or suffering from a disease. Science is the critical key to a lot of the doors that we find closed in our society. And we need to do everything we can to make sure that science gets to those who need it and that they have the opportunity to have hope in their future and to really not be daunted by um, some of the challenges they face today. I love it. I love it, John. What are your thoughts? First of all, I'm, I love Michelle, your vision of how we need to bridge the social justice gap with science, and I could not agree with that more. You know, getting getting to patient-focused drug development, I marvel with the fact that, Bob, to your earlier point, it wasn't that long ago that we would never engage the patient. It was always viewed as um, verboten. You know, we can only, only talk to the healthcare provider and the KOL. We could never talk to the patient, right? And that's just changed so dramatically over the last decade in a way that you just want to hit yourself over the head and say, why didn't we do this before? Because what we get from the patient voice is a real understanding of the innovation that they need, that they seek, and the solutions that they seek. And all of us, to Michelle's earlier point, are patients today, tomorrow, or know people that are. And Bob, your story, and Bobby, what an amazing story of the patient voice in, in your life. You asked about ways in which we, more things that we can do on this front. And I think one really is around the access side. How do we work more collaboratively with patient communities on, on access to medicines? It's a, it's a complicated topic because in some cases, due to structural reasons or due to co-pays, for example, innovation can be viewed as a, a financial burden for these patient communities. But we have to attack those factors. We have to 
work on those factors. And at the same time, patient groups understand the need for reward and incentive to attract in industry investment in the diseases they care about. So there are collaborative opportunities there, I believe, that we can take on. You know, guys, I am so excited right now. I honestly can't thank you enough for sharing your thoughts today. You are clearly two of the leading figures of this amazing industry. Personally, on behalf of the patients of the world, I can't thank you enough for all the amazing work that you do. So, Michelle and John, we can't thank you enough for joining us today. We truly appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. It's such a pleasure to be with you guys. This has been a great podcast. Many thanks to Dr. Michelle McMurray-Heath and Dr. John Mariganori for sharing their incredibly valuable insights into the complexities and uncertainties of the current biopharma industry. It is a precarious time, not just for us in our industry, but for all. And we need this type of leadership that we talked about today to survive and move beyond the existing hurdles. In our next episode of the State of Possible podcast, we will continue to speak about those topics affecting not just our industry, but our entire culture. Equity, diversity, and inclusion is something in which we at MassBio have recognized as having impact on all strata of the healthcare system and life sciences industry. The recent events in our country have made this issue even more acute than it was before. And on our next podcast, please join me and my guests in October for our important discussion. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Marsh and McLennan Agency is a regional insurance brokerage firm with access to global resources focused on the life science community, representing over 1,000 biotechs across the U.S. We work with life science companies from conception, clinical trials, and product launch to domestic and global expansion, and provide products, service, expertise, and advocacy in the areas of employee benefits, risk management, liability, and more. Visit marshmma.com to learn why we are the partner of choice for VC firms, service providers, and life science advocates. That's marshmma.com. Thank you for joining us on the State of Possible podcast with Bob Coughlin, and a special thanks to our sponsors, Thermo Fisher Scientific, AIS, and Marsh and McLennan Agency. I also want to thank Jenny Nason, and Zach Stanley of MassBio, as well as my co-producer, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media. You can listen to the State of Possible podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and with all Android players. Please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast using your favorite directory. Finally, if you know anyone who should be featured on this podcast, please contact me at paulkidwell at comcast.net. That's Paul Kidwell at comcast.net.